Well, hello, uh, Catherine, and wel- welcome, welcome back. Welcome also to all of our listeners to another of um, Catherine's weekly uh, climate wraps. Uh, Catherine, uh, great to see you, and thank you for um, this week's wrap, which is focused on COP, the big conference in Dubai that starts next Thursday. And I wondered, um, you know, what what should we be looking for out of this um, climate palooza of a conference with 70,000 people? Yeah, well, I've had a look at what some of the key goals of the conference are and what I think we should be looking for in terms of of progress. Um, And so some of the goals are, first of all, around um, fossil fuels. Uh, uh, It's not a surprise that that's a big um, topic of conversation at this year's um, COP28, given its location and its president. Um, But there is a focus on um, transitioning away from fossil fuels. So one of the big things to look out for there so far, what we have seen is, for instance, the agreement between China and US to amplify um, the growth in global renewable energy. That on its own is not a transition. Um, What you need for a transition is for fossil fuels to also be scaled down. Um, So everybody's going to be watching out for a commitment by producer countries to actually scale down um, their fossil fuel production, at least in line with um, the predictions for the peaking of fossil fuel demand, so at least in line with the demand reductions over time. Um, sorry, go ahead, and, um, and, and that's um, that's will be interesting to see because you're right. Um, the head of COP this year is the head of the uh, the UAE's uh, main oil and gas company. And I sense that a lot of the people at Dubai this year will be there to effectively defend the status quo and to avoid uh, reducing emissions. There is this um, piece of magical thinking, I, I, I believe, that somehow we can get to uh, carbon zero by just uh, not changing much at all and simply adding more renewable energy when actually to get anywhere near some sort of remotely safe level of um, warming will require massive, fast, actual reductions in burning of fossil fuels because uh, either waiting to somehow bury it in the ground or uh, simply hoping that um, uh, renewable energy will um, grow up naturally and overwhelm the fossil fuels is... um, not realistic. Yeah, and even once the fossil fuels peak, there's there's potentially a very long tail to keep an eye on. Like we need it to actually go down and not just sort of flatten out or or trail away over decades and decades to come. So, yeah, there's that. Um, another thing they're likely to be talking about is the targets of um, below two degrees and staying as close as possible to 1.5. One of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that most of the, or all of the scenarios that the IPCC have put together that look at um, what uh, gets staying below two degrees by 2100 involve overshooting those targets and then pulling um, carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere using different um, quite speculative technologies to do that. Um, and so uh, 
passing those targets of 1.5 and 2 degrees, that, that is part of the plan at the moment, is that we will go right past them and then haul it back later. And that means that at every one of these conferences, they can continue to say that the target is to stay below 2 degrees and as close to 1.5 as possible, and they can just add more removals to take out in the back half of the century. So... That is a very cunning plan, um, and when you when you hear the restatement of those goals, you'll know that they've pinned the tail back on the weasel of that cunning plan. <laughs> That's very very clever. Um, and it, it, the, another way to describe it is a bit like someone who is um, quite overweight, saying that they're going to lose the weight, but only after they've added uh, fifteen kilos kilos first. Um, they just really really need to to. Um, consume a lot more uh, food first because um, it's fun and it's it's nice and don't worry uh, just wait another few years and then I'll take take it off and it's just um, not um, credible um, uh, although this is going to be part of the response that's going to need some pushback yeah there's been quite a few um, climate scientists who have been pushing for the IPCC to have at least one scenario that stays below two degrees by 2100 without resorting to climate dioxide removal technologies. And there is a way to do that. But the only way to do that is to remove the constraint that they must have economic growth every year between now and then. And that is one of the rules, the political rules of the UN that is constraining exploring different um, avenues to get there. So whether there's any conversation at all about that um, remains to be seen, but that would be something to look out for. Now, the um, last COP was was very much about the financiers. There was an awful lot of um, talk about ESG bonds and climate bonds and all sorts of um, quite attractive ways in which private capital uh, would be deployed to uh, build renewable and all sorts of other things. Um, what what might we hear this time around? Um, I sense the conference this time around is about fossil fuels, uh, but what's happening with climate finance? Yeah, climate finance is also quite high on the agenda, and there was a goal a few years ago to um, contribute something like a hundred million US dollars to the global south every year, and we've never come close to that. I think we're something like seventy billion a year. Um, so the climate financing is another thing that is quite key to the success of COP28. But at the moment, I would say at, at a zoomed out overall um, scale, the climate financing is kind of a bit paralysed by the poor economic modelling of climate impacts. Um, and we talk about that a little bit more, but the, the modelling of how economic, um, how climate change will impact GD, global GDP over time is completely bonkers. Like, and, and most people working with it know that there is a problem there. It's just a bit hard to backtrack. Um, but until, until you get some really um, good proper estimates of the damages that we'll see from climate change, um, it's very hard to justify the amount of financing that you need to do anything about it. You know, because at the moment the models say that the the hotter the temperatures grow, the the higher GDP goes, and the better off we will be, and that's clearly quite problematic. Yeah, tell tell us about uh, how those models came to pass, 
and, you know, what more realistic uh, models are actually saying? Well, you know, there's a bit of conversation going on about this in in rooms all over the place at the moment. Um, So the original models, the original climate modelling was done by, um, was developed by a guy called William Nordhaus, who won a uh, who won a Nobel Prize in economics for his efforts, and what most people assume is when when you look at the the back end of the the, the modelling that that all of the stuff that the scientists do that look at you know what um, impact climate change will have on the environment that that's kind of loaded into it, but it's not. The only thing they take out of those models is um, the temperature and the greenhouse gas concentration, and then. The, the economists themselves figured out what kind of damage that would do to economies. And some of the assumptions that went into that process, um, are, I mean, they're, they're really not, a, don't display a very good understanding of climate, how climate change works. For instance, one of the assumptions that, go, that has gone into these models is that something like 87% of the economy won't be affected by climate change because um, that productivity happens indoors in climate-controlled areas, so it won't be affected by climate change. Now, that understands climate really as weather, not, you know, not in the way that it is. And so, you know, there's there's other kind of assumptions like that that are, that are packed in there. Um, so the whole modelling needs to be un, unpacked and restructured and re-put together according to some reality-based understanding of how climate change is actually going to interact with um, economies and with GDP. So what you see in the um, in the in the pathways, the scenarios that the the IPBC go, as I said before, is that no matter how much the temperature goes up, um, the GDP goes up along with it. In fact, the highest um, GDP figures are on the models where we burn all of the fossil fuels available to us and get to temperatures that would be civilization ending and yet the GDP is as good as it's ever been. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's hard to see climate financing really, um, you know, working the way it ought to work and, and being generated to the levels that it needs to be generated as long as the economics of climate change are so poorly constructed. Yes, and the, one of the other things that's going to crop up at uh, the COP is climate inequality and the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, which have been around for a while. What do you think um, is likely to be discussed on that at COP? Yeah, I mean, it is slated for discussion. I mean, not a single one of the um, sustainable development goals is on track so there's a huge gap in achieving those. Um, I kind of think a lot of these conferences, there's there's a sense from people that equity is optional um, in climate change policy. Uh, and I would argue that it's not optional at all, that you're not going to get there um, without having catastrophic outcomes unless you deal with these gaps. So one sign to be to look out for, and honestly, I don't think it's going to happen, but a good thing would be, a decent plan to really tackle the gaps between where the SDGs are currently sitting and where they need to be. Mm. Because as we've seen in a couple of recent election results, um, in democracies at least, if the people who feel that climate policies are not working for them um, uh, decide that they're going to just ditch all the climate policies, uh, then that is a thing. 
And one one way to ensure that you um, keep some climate policies that achieve some useful things is to ensure that the people who are most affected, and it's clear that uh, a lot of climate policies without offsetting um, adjustments um, hurt the poor the most. Uh, yeah. And and you 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 essentially end up you know losing everything by not um, making a point of helping the poor. Yeah, most climate policy, most policy efforts, what they tend to do is they try to spread the costs of dealing with climate change across the entire population in order to get more acceptability for it. The problem with that is as the costs go up, um, the amount that you, uh, the the cost to the poorest in society is going up as well, and they are the ones that contribute least to the problem in the first place. So it is fundamentally inequitable to apply those those policies evenly across society. The poor are bearing more of the burden than what they really ought to be. Um, And one of the problems with um, trying to reverse that is that the rich have more power and capacity to resist having the true costs of their lifestyle choices imposed on them. Um, So that contributes to growing within country inequality, which then becomes very structurally difficult to do anything about climate change when you've got that problem because at some point the poor will start to resist themselves and to protest the costs that are being you know, put onto them. That's great, Catherine. Thank you very much. And we will um, no doubt follow the uh, results of COP as it comes through. Thanks again for your weekly climate wrap. Um, and uh, we will look forward to it again next week. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, Bernard.